Amen. Do you pray with me? Heavenly Father, on this day, when uh, after our, we have been reminded that our lives, the lives that we have built, are so fragile. They can be taken away in a moment. We run to you, and we confess that you are our shelter, our fortress, our refuge, our rock, and our redeemer. We praise you, and we thank you this morning. Would you now speak to us through your word, comfort us, encourage us, convict us, draw us to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If there was a serial killer on loose and out to get you, if there was a suspicious, shady character following you home tonight, if there was a kidnapper stalking your kids, if there was a foreign army about to launch an attack on Ottawa, you'd want to know, right? And you want to know what you'd have to do to avoid the danger. Today, I think that you need to know some alarming news that there actually is someone out to get you. Tracking you, stalking you, plotting against you. There's an army ready to attack. They are far stronger than you you are on your own, and... They really do want to destroy you. And yet, while I need you to be aware of this, I don't want you to be scared by it. Because we can have someone by our side who is far stronger than they are and who prepares us to face these dangers himself. I want you to see what I mean. So if you have a Bible, if you please open up with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6. We're quickly coming to the end of our journey through Ephesians. We've come a long way from an in-depth overview of God's plans for us in the gospel to a few chapters on how to live a life worthy of that gospel and how to be filled with the Spirit. And after all of that, it's like the Apostle Paul takes a deep breath, and so it goes, finally, (laughs) finally, he's going to give us some concluding, summarizing, motivating thoughts as he finishes. But after how majestic much of Ephesians has been, today's passage can kind of hit us like a slap in the face. Like, we're thinking of of being loved by God and saved by grace and seated with Christ in glory. Then all of a sudden, bam, we're dropped into the ugly trenches of a war zone. We're already saved. We're secure in Christ if we have come to Jesus. But we're still living in a dark world and an evil age. We know Christ has already defeated the devil and his forces, but they're still around and fighting tooth and nail. 
like the sore losers they are. And so, Paul's final words sound a bit like a general's rallying cry for his troops. Think of movie scenes of Aragorn with his army or Captain America with the Avengers, like pumping them up, boosting their resolve, urging them on towards glory in battle. Paul was like, there's a battle that's needing to be fought, and don't be alarmed, but you're caught on the front lines. The fighting may be fierce, but don't despair, because this enemy can be defeated. This is a very familiar passage to most Christians, which we'll read, which includes the armor of God. But I suspect that if you're like me, you may be confused a bit about the armor of God. You may not understand the point of it or how we're supposed to wear metaphorical armor. How are we supposed to do this? Well, I want to remove some of that confusion today and not only help us understand the armor of God, but help us actually start wearing it every day for the battle that rages around us. And when we look at this closely and study what this passage is saying, I think the point becomes fairly clear. In verse 10, we are told to be strong. And then in verse 11, 13, and 14, we are told to stand or to stand firm. Same idea. Four times in these verses. We need to stand strong as God's people in our evil age. Some, or many of you today though, might not feel very strong, might not feel like very strong Christians right now, but that's okay because you being strong doesn't depend on your own strength, believe it or not. See, the Lord provides all we need to stand strong against evil, and we first see that he provides all we need to stand strong in himself. The Lord provides all all that we need to stand strong against evil in himself. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, that doesn't say anything about our preparation at all, does it? Like, we become physically strong through work and exercise, nutrition, rest, and the like. So when we're told that we need to be strong, we might expect advice on how to get strong. Instead, we're told that someone else is already strong, and we can be strong in him. Basically, someone else prepared on our behalf. And it says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. If God has saved us, we have been united with Christ. So we are now considered in Christ or in the Lord. We're now eternally inseparable from him. So when God sees us, he sees Jesus. Where Jesus goes, we go. What happens to him happens to us. The Lord shares with us all of his own righteousness and love and grace and glory. And as we see here, his strength and his might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. How strong is Jesus? It's stronger than we can fathom. 
mightier than we can imagine. He created the world. He tamed the sea. He beat the devil. He conquered the grave. And we're forever united to him. So we can, in fact, be strong today because Jesus is strong. And yet, so often we try to live this life and fight our battles on our own strength, don't we? And we feel immense pressure to to rise to the occasion whenever life gets rough. We we think it's totally up to us to defeat long-term sin issues in our lives. We encourage one another with, you're so strong, girl, or you've got this man. But what about when we don't got this? What about when we know that underneath it all, we're weak? What about when we've already fallen far short of how we know we should live? You will never be able to stand strong against the evil in your life on your own power or strength. So, thank God that that's not what we're told to do here. It says, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Like We may feel we are so weak that we are certain to fall and to fall again. But that's our old nature speaking, doubts about our salvation and God's power. You and I do not empower ourselves anymore. We do not strengthen ourselves. We are strong only in the Lord. And in himself, he provides everything we truly need for standing strong against evil. His power is made perfect in our weakness. So when I am weak, then I am strong. And therefore, we can re-enter the battle with Renewed confidence, restored zeal. So, be strong in the Lord. How then do we live this out? How do we practically be strong in the Lord? The answer is in the armor of God. Look at verse 11. So right after saying, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of of the devil. Now from this verse and what follows, we see that the Lord provides all we need to stand strong against evil in his armor. Kind of just a, a variation of the first point. But the Lord provides all we need to stand strong against evil in his in himself and in his armor, the armor of God. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now much of our modern world doesn't believe in a real devil. You may have doubts yourself. God's word has no such doubts, though. And there's simply too much supernatural evil out there to explain away naturally. We may still have wrong ideas about Satan. Like, for example, he's God's oldest and fiercest enemy, yes. But he's not God's evil equal counterpart. He's far below God. But Satan is still real and powerful and and poses a very real threat to us and our faith. 
He and his fellow fallen angels are actively scheming and plotting against us. I do not underestimate how strategic and creative and tricky and even flat-out brilliant the devil may be. He's been at this a long time. He, you could say he's now a master human manipulator. What are his schemes that this talks about? Well, there are too many possibilities to name, really. Really, it could include anything that turns us aside from the way of Christ. Earlier in Ephesians, though, in Ephesians 4, we saw that he tries to get a foothold in our lives through uncontrolled or unresolved anger. And that he works through stealing and falsehood and bitterness or any corrupting talk. In chapter 5, we saw the ever insidious dangers of sexual immorality or covetous greed. Satan can tempt us to, to doubt our salvation, to despair over our sin. He can keep us full of self-condemnation that denies the gospel. He's the accuser of the brethren, after all. I'm certain that Satan stands at least partly behind many of the major evils in our society. Abortion, euthanasia, radical sexual ideologies, poverty, abuse, racism, terrorism, you name it. Brian Chappell says that these kinds of things all combine to create a culture where sin is crouching at the door of even the most socially respectable. The evil one who parades as an angel of light blinds us to the devastating effects of these forces. He deludes or distracts us with selfish interests to convince us that we must accept these evils for the sake of personal liberty, pleasure, and power that are supposed to bring Happiness. And that's the thing, because many of his schemes will look convincingly good to us. Desirable. Satan's traps are often unseen, camouflaged, perfectly tailored for his victims. We underestimate the devil and his schemes to our own peril. And yet... This verse says that we can stand against him. Despite his cunning, we can beat him. How? By donning the armor of God. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You can do this. I think of the, the moments in books or movies when, when someone receives a, a game-changing weapon. All right, like a, a sword, a lightsaber, a gun, a hammer, a shield, a wand, a battle axe, whatever. Right? Those are epic moments because they, cha- they can change the course of everything. And they give us hope that our heroes may indeed be able to win the day. Now, picture yourself receiving exactly the tools you need to fight against the evil in your life. Except that you're not just given one great weapon, you're given a complete set, a complete suit of armor. And not just any armor either. Paul calls it the armor of God. 
which, believe it or not, is not just the armor God provides, but the armor God himself uses or wears. Do you know that? Because much of Paul's imagery is taken straight from the book of Isaiah. And there, for instance, in Isaiah 11, it says the Messiah will be like a warrior who comes with a rod or a sword from his mouth and a belt. And then Isaiah 59 says the Lord puts on a breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. So really the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6 is God's own armor that he has worn, that he provides for us now to wear. How would that ever fit us? Well, it wouldn't unless we were somehow united to the Lord. But do you think that God's own armor is strong enough to stand against Satan? Oh, yeah. So, let's put it on. All right? But first, in any battle or any war, it's crucial to, to, that the correct enemy be identified. And when that doesn't happen, we get the tragedies of friendly fire or innocent civilian deaths. In verse 12, Paul reminds us of who our actual enemies are and are not. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he says this to show us why it's so vital that we put on the armor of God, because these aren't just any run-of-the-mill, weak and frail opponents. They are powerful, far deadlier foes. We can only resist them in God's power. But this verse also gives us an important reminder that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, other people, other humans are not our true enemies in, as Christians. Sometimes they may feel like our enemies. Sometimes they may act like our enemies. But they're not. Even if they do oppose us, we aren't meant to fight them, but to reach out to them with Christ's love. This means that we do not wrestle against Justin Trudeau or Doug Ford or gay and trans people or pro-choice protesters or evolutionary scientists or secular materialists, convicted criminals. We don't wrestle against people that we personally haven't forgiven yet, that we're bitter about. We don't wrestle against anti-maskers, or vaccine pushers, or whomever. We've envisioned a lot of kinds of people as our enemies lately, haven't we? But our enemy isn't them. Our enemy is the devil and his agents. 
So we have to keep the right enemy in view. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, those don't likely refer to different categories or classes of evil spirits. Paul's just emphasizing that we have a host of varied, powerful enemies under Satan. They rule things, they have cosmic power, they are forces to be reckoned with. And they're in the heavenly places, that is, the unseen spiritual realm, which is alarming. We can't see them, but it shouldn't frighten us, since the heavenly places is where we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, where where Christ reigns, and we're now reigning with him, in essence. So there they are subjected enemies. And yet, it says our world is still under a present darkness. They have some sway. Some of us, even if we say we believe the devil is real, seem to act as though he isn't. We aren't concerned with how spiritual powers may try to take us down. We live in what one scholar labels unconscious disbelief unconscious disbelief. I hope this passage helps wake us up today. Our spiritual struggle is real. The fight is personal. Like the word for wrestle refers to this close hand-to-hand combat. It's an intimate battle. And this battle with evil is merciless. There will be no truce and no quarter given. It is real, it's personal, and it's merciless. And so, verse 13 repeats the command to get dressed in the armor of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Now, being able to withstand is talking about resisting or standing your ground in the fight, and having done all to stand firm is talking about still be, being still standing at the end of the fight. Today, you may feel beaten up by the trials and hardships of life, and understandably so. Or you may feel defeated by the evils and sins present in your own heart. Or maybe you've been well aware of Satan's attacks on you, and you're plain worn out. You're sick of it. In any of these cases, you may need to hear the simple encouragement here to keep on fighting, to to get back on your feet, because the battle isn't over yet to receive afresh all that God has provided for your struggle, to resist evil anew. You may just need to hear the heartfelt encouragement today to to stand firm. Stand firm. You don't got this, but God does. So let's be strong in the Lord. Without any further ado, verse 14 delves into the six pieces of armor in the armor of God. But not before saying one more time to stand. Stand therefore. Stand therefore. 
Now, we're going to go through each piece of armor one at a time. But first, I do think we need to ask the question, what is the armor of God, actually? Because it can seem quite abstract, confusing. Well, the armor of God is obviously a metaphor for something to do spiritually, not physically. Like, we won't be handing out swords and shields as you leave today. Tim Keller explains that the basic idea of the armor of God is that all the benefits of Christ's salvation, pardon, peace, God's love for us, that have been objectively secured for us, must be personally appropriated for daily life. All these things are abstractions until they're inwardly received for our actual use. So that's why we're told to to take up the armor, commanded to take it up. We are appropriating the things of Christ for our daily lives. And yet at the same time, as Jared Wilson says, notice that this armor consists entirely of things God does or provides for us. We don't put on the helmet of self-affirmation. We don't put on the shoes of motivation. We don't put on the belt of intestinal fortitude. No, we put on what God has done for us in Christ, which is to say, we put on Christ. So, we don't put on the armor of God by working harder on doing the right things. We put on God's armor by putting our confidence and trust in what God provides for us. After all, can you provide truth and righteousness and peace and salvation for yourself? No. Brian Chappell explains what I think may be the key to this whole thing. He says, these weapons against evil are what our God, not our hand, supplies. Therefore, we can and must trust our armor. The armor that we use, God has already put in place. We stand firm because God has already supplied our armor, not in order to receive the armor. We stand because we are confident of what God has done, not because of our confidence in doing what God requires. So, what is it that we actually do to put on the armor? The key is to have faith in it, to trust that it's there, to know that you're wearing it. Certainly, there are are some things we can do to increase our confidence and our faith in God and perhaps better our ability to use the armor in, in the first place. But none of these put the armor on in the first place. Our spiritual protection rests not on our spiritual discipline, but on God's power. And Chapel continues this way. He says, We gain the confidence to rely on God's armor and utilize it when, on Scripture's authority, we perceive his protection to be as real as the armor Paul observed on the soldier guarding him in prison when he penned these words. Thus, when the day of evil comes and our temptation is great, we should not say, Satan cannot touch me because of how truthful, righteous, and faithful I have been. Rather, we should say, I am protected by the truth that though I feel weak, I am strong. Though I may fall, I possess Christ's righteousness. And though I am not perfect, I have peace with my God who has provided the faith I could not conjure, the salvation I could not earn, and the spirit I daily need. 
So, first up, verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, or buckling it around your waist, fastening it tight. A, soldier, a Roman soldier's belt had several key functions. One, it held his sword. Two, it, it drew up and cinched his tunic in place so he could run and move unhindered. And three, it protected his mid-regions and sensitive areas from attack. So really, fastening a belt was all about being ready for active battle. As Canadians, we might picture a hockey player fastening his helmet, inserting his mouthpiece, sliding on his gloves, clenching his stick, and then stooping over, poised for the face-off. So then the question is, how does truth, how does truth ready us for active battle against evil like a belt? Well, God's truth holds everything else in place, and it protects us from being entangled or tripped up by deadly threats. Much like Jesus used truth to fight off Satan's temptations, so can we. It's fitting that the, that the father of lies is put to flight by truth. Pastor Harold Senkfield puts it, in an age when there, where there is no absolute truth, but only infinitely varying personal values, the truth of God is essential to keep you at the ready for battle, even while everything around you is in flux. So, have you received the truth of God? If so, thank the Lord for it. Like The more you trust his truth, the readier you will be for the battle at hand. Second, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate was the piece of armor covering a soldier's chest, of course, in order to protect vital organs such as your heart and your lungs from injury. So how does God's righteousness protect our spiritual lives? Because... My righteousness certainly won't cut it. It's not strong enough for a breastplate. Like Jared Wilson says, when the enemy attacks my heart, I don't want my self-righteousness standing guard, but the breastplate of actual righteousness, Christ's righteousness. So true. So thank the Lord for this. Like Jesus lived the righteous life that we were supposed to live but never could. And he offers to clothe us in his own righteousness if we will but believe in him. Once we do, Satan's going to tempt us to despair over how unrighteous we still are all the time. But as the song goes, we can behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness. He's our righteousness. And as we do that, our breastplate safeguards us from the devil's attacks. Third, verse 15. 
and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. No soldier is ready for battle without good footwear. I can see soldiers with war boots today. Can you even imagine running into a fight barefoot? Or in flip-flops or Crocs? In Paul's day, for warfare, sandals were specially fitted for and securely fastened to your feet. And they equipped you to run, to move with agility, and of course, to stand your ground. So, what exactly did the shoes represent in this picture? Sounds a little bit complicated. So the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what God provides for us is the gospel of peace, the good news of peace. We were once God's enemies, but Jesus came and made peace by the blood of his cross. He paid for our crimes, restored our relationship to God, he reconciled us, and now we're called to live in peaceful, reconciled relationships with one another. And this peace helps ready us for battle. When we have God's peace within us, we won't be paralyzed by fear in the midst of the fight. But there's another side to this picture as well. The imagery is actually taken from Isaiah 52, 7, which is, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Jesus fulfilled this prophecy as the very embodiment of peace, who made peace and announced peace, the good news of it. Now his people carry on his work. And the more we appropriate his peace in our lives, the more the gospel gives us readiness to announce the good news of peace ourselves to others. Like paradoxically, we are prepared to announce peace right as we engage in warfare. Verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Romans had these large, like, body size cloth-covered shields. They were often soaked in water before battle in order to not just block arrows or projectiles, but to extinguish any flaming ones, which some of their enemies would do. And, and those could really incinerate normal shields, give fatal injuries, or wreak havoc among an army. So they had these shields meant to extinguish that threat. If you have faith in Jesus, you've already picked up your shield of faith. However, this is also the place, it seems, that faces the fiercest attacks from the enemy. Like Satan wants to destroy our faith. He wants to make us disbelieve the gospel. The last thing he wants for us is that we would believe in Christ, confess him as Lord, and stand upon his truth. He wants to, to rob us of our confidence in God. 
and in Christ. So his flaming darts, as it says here, represent any and every kind of attack he fires our way. Temptation, doubt, despair, false teaching, even persecution. These are ways that he attacks us. Can you identify a way that he's tried to weaken your faith recently? Sure you can. That's an arrow. So, how do we stand our ground against these attacks? We press into our faith, reaffirming it, refusing to let go. Take up, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Like the very thing under attack is what protects us and repels the attack. As St. Beale says, Christ's saving work douses the destructive flames of the evil one. So put your faith in him, in Christ, believing his promises to save, love, and never forsake you. And as you do, know that you're taking up an awesome shield. Do you have faith today? Take a minute and thank God the Lord, for his gift of faith in your heart. And if you do not yet have faith, then hear this, to take up the shield of faith as a plea today. Take it up. Forsake your trust in yourself and your goodness. That's never going to do. And place all of your trust in Jesus to save you from sin and death, and hell. I pray that you would do this today, not waiting an hour longer. I believe, based on the scriptures, that your soul is in mortal danger without Christ. But you can take him up today. And if you do this, or, or you want to help to do it, or you have questions, please let us know. I'd be happy to help you. And then, verse 17 says, Take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. You know what a helmet does? Right? It keeps your noggin safe from fatal blows. Protects your skull and your brain from injury. Often your eyes and your ears and your nose as well. We recognize the need for helmets even outside of war. On work sites and in contact sports while riding bikes. In in the armor of God, the helmet represents salvation, being saved by God. We can't put on salvation more than once or even take salvation off. So this picture is telling us something else, really to appropriate it more and more, to understand it and appreciate it, and most of all, to trust in your salvation in Christ. As we live in light of our salvation, we can have full confidence in the outcome of the battle. The helmet of salvation will guard us until eternal life. Christ already won our salvation, so it's there for the taking. And last, but certainly not least, says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, this term for sword 
refers to a, a short-handled blade that the Romans would use in close combat. It was actually vital for both offensive and defensive maneuvers. So, why would the Word of God be described as a sword? Well, defensively, the truths of God's Word fend off plenty of attacks. Right? Reassuring our own hearts and debunking the lies of the enemy. And offensively, God's word is what penetrates our hearts and our minds, convicting us of sin, revealing Christ to us, leading us in righteousness. It's the sword of the Spirit, it says. So the, the tool that the Holy Spirit uses in our hearts, in our lives. And so, as we hear the Word of God, it parries off evil in our own hearts. And as we share the Word of God, it penetrates into others' hearts as well. As we'll sing in a few minutes, and with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we will fight with faith and valor. The sword that makes the wounded whole, piercing us and healing us at the same time. In Christ, if you have Christ, you have already been issued this powerful sword. There's no need to go forge a new one. You don't need to, to muster up new revelation or creativity. You have the sword of the Spirit. So will you wield it? Are you now taking it up? And using it in your life. You reading it as often as you can. By yourself, with your family. Hearing it read and, and preached weekly in a church community. Soaking it in. So that you learn it. Live it. And love it. Like this should not be seen as a burden but instead an incalculable blessing. The Word of God still speaks by the Spirit of God and changes lives. So may we actually pick up the sword and utilize it in every battle we face. For the sake of time and being able to do these verses justice, I'm going to cut us off here today. Mid-sentence in most translations. But I would be remiss if I didn't at least point out where we're going. Because in verses 18 to 20, we see a final aspect to standing strong in the Lord's strength. And it's so crucial that there isn't even a piece of armor given to describe it. And that is prayer. Expressing our total dependence on the Lord and asking for his daily provision and protection says, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We're going to consider prayer much more next week. But some feel that prayer is actually so crucial here. It's the, it's the main way that we are strengthened in the Lord and that we put on the armor of God. 
So as we come to a close today, let me encourage you that if you, don't, if you feel that you're not daily appropriating, experiencing, or using the armor of God, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God, pray for it. Pray for it. Stand firm in these things, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And God answers prayer. I recently read a story of a, a French-Canadian soldier in World War II named Leo Major. And what Major, a, a one-eyed sniper, accomplished was nothing short of stunning. In April 1945, he and a friend were sent out to, to scout the German-occupied city, Dutch city of Zwolle. But when his friend was killed shortly into their mission, Major decided that he would single-handedly liberate the city. He snuck in, and he found a German officer who he was able to convince that the city was surrounded and would soon be attacked by thousands of Canadians. Then, Armed with two big guns and a bag of grenades, he hijacked a truck and drove around the city for several hours, shooting, exploding, and causing general mayhem. He even captured several groups of prisoners along the way. Now, I, no, I don't kid you at all. By morning, the entire German army, thinking that they were under attack, had fled the city. It's a fascinating story. I couldn't believe I'd never heard of Leo Major before, or that there hasn't been a movie made of him. If I were in a war, I'd feel pretty confident if that Canadian super soldier was by my side. In our spiritual warfare today, we may sometimes feel like we are alone in our battles. But that couldn't be further from the truth. And we have someone far better than the best human one-man army by our side. And Jesus didn't just liberate a town by himself. He liberated the whole world. 1 John 3.8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's already destroyed the devil's work in my own heart. And he will do so again and again. No weapon formed against him and thus against us will prosper, says the Lord. And he provides us all we need to stand strong against evil. So may we be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Pray with me. Lord, we do come to you and we confess our need today, our weakness, that in the, the forces that assail us, we have no hope without you. And yet with you, we have all the hope in the world. We have all we need, all the strength we need, all the power we need. And so may we truly stand in you, that we would have a strong faith in you and all that you have done for us so that we can stand firm all the way until the end.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.